Hi, this is Paul Gladder with Religion Unplugged, and um, I'm very glad to be speaking today with a friend in Ukraine named Maria Kapinos, who is a alum of our European Journalism Institute program in Prague from 2018, uh, which is a program of the Media Project and Fund for American Studies. She's also a journalist and, as I understand it, a game designer. So before we start talking about the big story of the day, which is um, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, Maria, could you tell us a little bit about uh, where you're based and what you've been doing in journalism and other fields in, in recent years? Well, long story short, I'm from Ukraine. I am. I live in Kiev. That's the capital of Ukraine. And the story was always like that. I could do anything I want, but my, I always stay in Ukraine, you know, and that will be a place for me where I, where I felt secure and safe despite certain things that happened obviously before in Ukraine, which is like, um, we had the stabilized situation because Russia did some things in Ukraine before, which is like you have two, ter two regions in Ukraine that are occupied by pro-Russian troops, you know? But the thing is that you get used to many things, even the worst things. And I've learned to live under this pressure all the time because Kyiv, the capital still felt safe. So I traveled as a journalist. I've been writing all the time and uh, I've been interested in game design. So I work for an international company, but I did that mostly from Kyiv. I traveled somewhere just to have new like emotions. And then I came back to my home, you know? Yeah. And uh, probably my mistake was is deep down inside. I thought that really terrible things could not happen to me. And that's what many people do. They think that as long as I'm not involved, I'm fine. Hmm. And uh, like recent years, I we've started feeling the situation escalating. But everyone in my family said nothing goes, nothing is going to be happen, to happen. Nothing is going to happen. And when people that you trust say that, you're kind of yeah, maybe. And uh, I think the first time I really got scared, really scared, is when I found out that American embassy took all the people away or like off kindly offered to leave, which is mm. like basically go away, this place is not safe, you know? Yeah. And uh, so um, it's a very painful realization that the world feels so unsafe to me. I just don't find, I'm trying to explain how I feel about all of that, but still it's hard to find the right words because I just don't know. You know, I've been thinking and there is no patterns on how to react hmm. to the world where you have laptops, you can go jog, you think about going to McDonald's and then your country is being invaded in the same day or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do you, I mean, do you see signs right now? I mean, are you hearing explosions or anything or watching, or is it more watching, you know, news accounts um, and, you know, Instagram, Twitter, that kind of thing? Or what, what are you seeing? What's the scene right now where you are? So long story short, I decided to leave Kiev a couple of days ago. And why I did that is because I took, again, some karma, some of my belongings and, and I drove all the way to Lviv. Western Ukraine and then to Poland and what it was relatively easy to do um, But I think I did it 50 50 
part of the reason was that I wanted just to change the location because I work remotely. But another thing is deep down inside, I probably did worry that something might happen. I just didn't want to risk. But I really regret two things. And the most important thing that I regret is my family is in Kyiv. Like, and uh, today in the morning, I've heard something that made me feel so bad, which is my grandfather, he woke up hearing the bombing. Hmm. My mother woke up hearing the, the sound of the sirens just saying the city is like, uh, you know, under threat. So he came up, came up to my mother and he said, you know, I think I'm an obstacle to all of you. Hmm. Did... And it feels uh, very bad because what he meant that he cannot leave. Wow. He's an older person. He cannot literally leave. So that is the reason why my mother did not agree to leave because hmm. he had an older relative who's like, would not survive without our help, you know? Did you try to get them to come with you, Maria? At that point, I did not. What I did is I bought them a lot of groceries. Like, I really packed a lot of groceries, water, supplies. I've left them, I've cashed my accounts, like, I've left so little for myself. So I gave them all the money, literally, I had. And so I felt like if something happened, that would be the money that saved their lives, you know. Mm, and uh, water like some medicine and I've told them if just something happens that you just come to me but again I probably did not really think that that would be so hmm. so serious yeah you know? yeah so so and so you're literally sep you know separated from family and so this is a big major issue as is, is literal safety and security of, of your loved ones right now um, so can I ask something? Because you mentioned that you had a sense of security. And so hopefully some of our listeners remember 2014, there was the you know previous Russian incursion into Ukraine and initial war, you could say. And then um, Russia, in that act and time, took Crimea as its own. So did you and your family at that time think that was the end of the conflict? Or... Um, or, you know, is the current one a surprise or not a surprise? How do you, how are you guys talking about that right now in terms of that was what, uh, eight years ago? When it happened in 2014, that was actually the reason why I turned into journalism. Because many people from like other outlets came to Ukraine and I worked as a fixer. So I would help them to find hotels. And I saw how little they know about my country, you know? Mm -hmm. I realized that, and maybe it's not a bad thing, but still people that work in journalism, they are still people. They just go where they have been assigned, they don't, and they know nothing about the country. And I myself wanted to help so much. And also, um, I had a situation, my personal situation, which is my very good friend, he was so eager to support Ukraine, to help. He went to the war, he was like, he would turn to one of the first. And uh, uh, a couple of days later, his mother received his dead body. And he was my age, which is 21 at that point, I think. No, a bit less, 19, I think. So he was barely 
person about to grow and be like act and work and I remember feeling so um it felt like two worlds do not match together world where you have Nikes and you think about traveling to Italy and the war but the thing is this, the, the, the hardest thing answering your question is that people get used to pretty much everything you know and at some point yes Russia invade the Ukraine a long time ago yes there were fights fights on that territory but they didn't move further and at some point for me as a local I felt like maybe okay that is like a frozen conflict that will last for a couple of decades or something what I didn't realize is that you know we have books that are 1000 years old we have Kiev rules but then Putin says that Ukraine is a, is a made up country and that he wants to take back what he feels is his and that is 100% how I feel about that. I feel like he has this big ego and he thinks that people should be, uh, should obey to him immediately and be, but you know, here's the, tr here's the thing. I'm asking myself, what's better, Europe or Russia? And I don't understand how come that in Europe where there is no gas, no mineral resources, people live so much better than, in, than while in Russia we have, they have gas, they have natural resources, they could be so wealthy, but there is only a small percent of people that actually succeed. The others are poor. So, and they invest a lot only in their own pleasure and military. And they use it military against us. So even based on that simple comparison, I always knew that I don't feel that I want to be connected to Russia at any point. And many Ukrainians my age they feel absolutely the same, you know? So when someone tells us that, for, that Putin is protecting Ukrainians in uh, Ukraine, I'm, I'm really, I can't answer that without using curse words. Yeah. Because it's like bizarre. It's like something I don't understand. And you know what I don't understand that also, that why am I scared that I'm not with my family? You know, I just, mm -hmm. I don't understand whom to, whom, like whom to blame for that so it's very hard i studied as a bachelor's degree i've studied literature and part of that literature we went to the old sophia kiev cathedral which is like a very big church in the center of kiev we went downstairs to the secret like uh, archives and i saw writings that are 1,000 years old, you know, old Slavic language. And when you understand that your ancestors lived here and built that church 1,000, and I have response when I think about that, built that church 1,000 years ago, while there was no literally Europe at all, and you are part of that, your generations back are part of that culture, isn't that amazing to be part of something so, so mesmerizing? And uh, the thing is, if Putin says that we are a fake country, but in the same time, why does he try to take us so much? That is such a, it's like unmatchable, you know? All the novels, the stories, what I read, what I saw, Italian literature, Ukrainian literature, that was why actually, that was why 
my college agree about that and to a very huge extent. They are calling us source of the nation. Right. If you ask Russian 10 years ago about what he thinks about Kyiv, 80% will answer source of the nation, literally, literally, mm-hmm. literally, just think about that. How can a source of a nation be called a fake country? I, I really don't know. And this stuff goes way back to the Viking Age, the, the beginning of, of, of you know, right, the, the, the Kievan Rus, the um, early Christianity. To me, it, to me, it became clear, Maria, when I was the time I one time I was in Russia to Moscow and St. Petersburg, I visited the Hermitage and there was an exhibit of the Battle of Poltava and which I think happened in Ukraine in Ukraine soil. But it was a moment when Russia felt during the uh, one of the czars, I think it was Peter the Great. Uh, but anyways, it was a time when Russia felt they had regained empire from Sweden because they defeated Sweden at the uh, Battle of Poltava. And, and I remember the exhibit kind of explained to me a little bit of of how uh, Ukraine to Russia anyways was like this crown jewel or something to them. Um, but in a way you're saying it seems that Putin keeps making these kinds of arguments. History that Ukraine belongs to us. Those of us see he's being a bully. It was a crown jewel that never belonged to him. Thank you for knowing that. It really matters a lot to me that you know that you've been there. You have no idea how much, especially in last days, I understood how much sometimes words mean. Absolutely. And look, the, the other thing that um, I keep seeing brought up is this idea that Putin seems to, he's looking for any argument that he can to justify being a bully to go across the border. Um, and so one of the things he keeps bringing up is the denazification. He's trying to say that Azov group or these others. And, and right now he's focusing on these two eastern provinces that he says are has Moscow sympathizers and trying to say he needs to protect them and that there's these um, uh, neo-Nazi groups or something that have been yeah. grafted into the Ukraine military. But my main question to that argument is, um, what is it the business? Would it, should it be Ukraine's business or Poland's business if similar groups are in Russia or in other places? Does it give you a reason to go invade someone's country? Um, he's trying to create some kind of threat. I just don't see it, even you know, how that could be uh, any kind of threat. I think there's some other reasons here at play, which are pretty obvious to a lot of people. A lot of people, not not to all the people, and he uses this, like, this thinking about neo-Nazism to explain his invasion to their very radical people, but. Let me just tell you two things to address your question. All these eight years since the war started, I've been asking one question, and no one has ever answered it, it yet. Usually that end, that question ends up any conversation with pro-Russian people, which is like, if that is true, and there is no like people uh, that are like in Donetsk or Luhansk that are like fighting against Ukrainian army. How come that the Ukrainian army with all the help from the world cannot really 
kick out this group as of, of people that are fighting against Ukrainian army. What I'm trying to say is that if it wasn't for Russia backing up the separatists, that would never be a question. Exactly. So what they do is they, they bring all the force so that we couldn't kick them out. And with hands of some paper page people, they create the scenario, this story of like people trying to just escape the neonazism. But the thing is what people don't understand. For example, me, I am bilingual, you know, part of my family Russian speaking, part of my family Ukrainian speaking. And language, which Russians claim is a problem in Ukraine or that it's been like back to, it's been like a, a pre, an undemocratic impression. That's not true. For us, it's not about language because we speak both languages and Russian language, we, it's part, it's our culture, our language too. And, but like when he brings up this uh, neo-Nazism thing, he talks about two things. That is that Russian language is being under pressure, not true. And that there are these people that in Donetsk and Luhansk that want to kind of not be part of Ukraine. You know, because they are, I don't know, for some some of the reasons they have, which is also not true because he backs that people up and pays them regular salaries on a daily, I mean, monthly basis. And the New York Times notes that when Ukraine became an independent country, overwhelmingly, including in those eastern regions, they voted for nationhood of Ukraine. The, yeah. Yeah. And that is actually... Um, you know, if you type in YouTube uh, or like anywhere in Google, one thing, one thing, why Ukrainians speak Russian. And hmm. that's actually my article. I wrote that. I'm so proud of that. Great. And so uh, there was a huge investigation. I myself spent, spent in archives so much time. And uh, so that was an article by Kiev Post. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember preparing for that article I went to the archives in Kyiv and I saw a pile of papers where it says that person in 1917 when Russians invaded Ukraine before that's another story to talk about people could be just killed there on the spot for speaking Ukrainian yeah. and I had papers seeing that so and then um when you know history of Eastern Ukraine, that was all pro-Ukrainian, but Russia came over, took over, and they started bringing Russian soldiers and military there, so people would kind of, we called, switch to Russian language. But in the villages, there's, we have this like a, kind of a mixture of Ukrainian and Russian. But basically, people speak Ukrainian in the villages, you know? Yeah. And again, to me, when I, I read uh, in his speech, he's offended that that Ukrainians are speaking their own language. I don't see how, the, like, I think the world the world sees them, that this anyone. is offensive. This is a bully. Um, it's, it's so offensive. Yeah. So um, let's talk about religion because you, you brought it up about the when you saw the underground site in Kiev, but could you ex tell us, um, you know, look, 
most of Ukraine and, and, and most of Russia is Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, right? And um, some people may not. So how much is the Russian Orthodox Church supporting Putin? Mm -hmm. And maybe tell mm -hmm. us what is the um, how is the Ukrainian Orthodox community different than the Russian Orthodox community? And what do we need to know about this? Uh, by the way, before answering, I wanted to tell you that religion was part of the reason why my, why my parents broke up. My father, he was actually an Orthodox, and he was its so-called Moscow Patriarch. Hmm. And my mother was like Ukrainian Patriarch. Wow. And uh, that seems very similar, but for my father it was a big deal because what, um, what Russians said for a very long time is that Moscow Patriarchy is kind of blessed by, has this blessing from Constantinople, meaning Istanbul, you know, and uh, that was that is actually officially true, and we've recently received, if you know about that, that same blessing, and it was a big deal for our country, so the situation with religion could almost even out, and. I think that that was part of the reason why Putin invaded because he saw the ties kind of breaking apart, breaking apart, breaking apart, and now he had no other ways but to, to, to invade. So what I'm trying to say is that we have many Moscow Orthodox, we have Ukrainian Orthodox, and we have uh, um, Catholic, uh, Catholics, but they are also, uh, there is Rome Orthodox and Greek Orthodox, so they are basically Rome Orthodox, not Greek Orthodox, that in comparison to Poland. And uh, basically, how I feel is Ukraine is not that religious as, for example, Poland. And especially among younger people, uh, I feel. But um, when we received this blessing from Istanbul, Ukrainian church received a lot of like good things, rights. And people that were in Moscow um, patriarchy, they could now switch to Ukrainian patriarchy. And uh, like, for, from my perspective, believing and accepting the religion is two different things because religion is not not being like truthful, you know. And uh, I always wondered how come that, for example, Russian church all the popes have three four cars i'm not trying to be disrespectful but i don't, don't find it correct even like maybe it's a wrong it's a very like um not really right thing to say but i pay attention even to how the popes act you know mm -hmm. like ukrainian orthodox church they are like dress humble they do not say that we should give everything away to the church to the to the government and that's what russian orthodox church does yeah and by by the way important thing i've told you i mentioned the church uh, uh, which is like a key butcher's flower and the thing is officially it it was part of russian orthodox church and it was one of the first churches in Europe. And the Russian, um, like, uh, religious people, they would often come to Ukraine once a year 
to pray in that church. Wow. Because yeah. um, Volodymyr, who was the kind of like a, the ruler, he, when he baptized the whole Kiev Rus, um, he literally did that. It was a te- so he, what he did that near and that church was a symbol of uh, um, b- b- of this bapti- baptization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, by the way, what do you have any sense of during the conflict, which has been building for a couple of weeks before this invasion happened this week? But um, any you know any indications of what um, Ukrainian Orthodox priests or churches or parishioners like your mother or others um, are I know are they communicating on messaging apps? Are they you know doing any prayer services or things going on that are interesting right now? Um, from a religion well, standpoint? Some, well, some of the things got worse because of the COVID, meaning that less people would go to church physically on the big church, like a parties, like a big pa- big holidays, big parties. Uh, so, but in my family, for example, you know, we would just, um, nothing has really changed, you know. We went yeah. till the very last moment just like to go, like, on, on a you know monthly basis, weekly basis depends. So there was not nothing bad coming from the church, like uh, you know nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I cannot really maybe there was something, but I just haven't seen. Who knows? Okay, so you don't know how active the Ukrainian church com- Christian community is right now in terms of, uh, um, and you know in terms of resistance can, or prayer or... i can tell you here is what i can tell you i ukrainian church helps the army a lot meaning that with supplies like with medical support they send all the like uh, medicine and uh, they try to help this way hmm. and we, i saw the post for example yeah i i recall one of our another alum from ukraine from eji had did, uh, did a story once about a uh, uh, a pastor, I think a Ukrainian pa- Orthodox pastor, or maybe it was an evangelical pastor who went on the front lines as a sniper, and how does he justify killing people when he with his theology? It was a really fascinating piece. Um, so there, that's interesting, that tie, though, between the church He and, died. What's that? He died. He died? You know yes. that one? Oh, wow. Of course. Wow. He died. He was shot like not that long time ago, a year ago. So. Oh my goodness. I wanted to ask you, I mean, we talked about some of the justifications and we could we could spend hours on it, but I know we both have limited time and so do our listeners. So I, I encourage people to go and read the New York Times and, and other coverage of, of, um, of that kind of thing, the justification here. But the other issue um, are the, you know, the aims. I'm curious, like, how how do you see this unfolding and is is putin's aim to um to just retake parts of the east those two regions so that it resets the clock when we think about timing right nato membership one one theory i've heard is that nato membership is uh, requires a country to have borders that are unaltered for seven years so 
It's about seven years or more from that previous conflict in 2014. So is this is an effort to carve off another piece of the Ukraine by, by Russia or Putin, one effort to stall NATO membership? Or, um, I mean, he said in his remarks, of course, he has larger aims that it could include all of Ukraine or that could include other countries in the former USSR, Soviet bloc. Um, so any, any comments, I guess, on the aim here, or is it too hard to speculate on what his, the aim is? No, there's uh, some things I know for sure is that it wasn't about Ukraine entering NATO, because I never believed that uh, Ukraine will be part of NATO at all. There's many political things that reason is behind that. One of the reasons is that actually, um, I believe Putin worried that there is, first of all, Ukraine becomes too independent because we had a visa-free regime. We kicked out one of his allies, which is like Medvedchuk, who was like his advisor. And if you like, if you like deeper into Ukrainian politics, you would know how big that of a deal that was. And we shut down all of his channels. Meaning that, uh, so for him, it was more about that. And also, when we're talking about NATO, he didn't like that there is. NATO allies troops like growing uh, forces on the territory of like for example Poland which is close to Ukraine and that was what he, what he worried about it wasn't like a, a deal it wasn't even um, a question Ukraine entering NATO you know and I don't think that this is about that what I feel is first of all uh, I think that you, history repeats itself when Hitler invaded people also stayed quiet till the very last moment and they actually at that point invaded Poland now he invades Ukraine and uh, I know why because everyone wants to to keep the peace what they don't understand that is this guy he's not calculated at all because there is no perks to what's happening in Ukraine to any to either Russia or Ukraine no benefits like materially materially you know what is he winning from that uh, attacks nothing but but the influence as he thinks in his i think very perverted mind so for him it's a question of ego proving that ukraine is a big scale player first of all second of all for him it's also he feels like he owes ukraine he's like being mad at us for making our own decisions although officially do not really have to ask him for permission to make our own decisions, but he thinks that's wrong. Even the fact how he talks about our language is a crew, you know. But staying closer to the facts, the facts is that he, I don't know if he wants to take over Ukraine. I know that it will be extremely materially expensive to control the territory that is not willing to be like controlled by Russian military troops because mm -hmm. there is, that's one thing when you're like being somewhere and people do not really uh, confront you and that's another thing when for example in Kyiv everyone bought guns you know and you cannot control the ter that kind of territory for like that too, way too long extremely expensive yes. so unless he but who knows again he made some stupid things before so unless uh, based on the facts i believe that he wants to take to grab a pieces of territory mm -hmm. but he wants to injure ukraine and damage ukraine as much as possible right now yeah yeah That's what I 
Yeah, no, good. Well, that that's appreciate hearing your take on that. And um, yeah, and, and I did see that a lot of the president of Ukraine, who, by the way, is has Jewish background. So some people were pointing out on Twitter, it's like you're saying this is a Nazification where your president, the president of this country is actually Jewish, partly. And but he was encouraging people to take up arms and fight for their homeland. Right. Forty million people or more who believe in their homeland is, is um, something nobody really wants to mess with, I think. Because that's the national idea. When you say that I have goosebumps, because, you know, that's one thing to fight because you're being paid for that. And that's another thing when you protect your family and your territory. That yeah. is a way different kind of fighting. Yes. My, my last two questions for you, and I so appreciate your time and your thoughts here, uh, Maria, is um, what, you know, what should the West do? Uh, it's so... I, I hope that you and your family feel and see that um, Europe and the U.S. Are, have been watching this and care about it, but it's also a sense of those of us watching it, it's hard to know what should the country do um, politically, militarily, what should the U.S. do politically, militarily, are we doing enough? And then, you know, and then on a personal level, what should we be doing? Well, I believe that if the only way things become really bad for Putin, it's actually two ways. If there are so many protests that he cannot really confront that because he's really scared of that, people will, you know, just start to protest. In Russia. That's one thing. In Russia? Yeah. yeah. So that's one thing that could bring him down. And another thing could bring him down, him down is when people that are like, you know, kind of in his tribe, they start losing access to money and their lives become very intolerable. So if that happens, they will, they themselves will put him down. And I believe in a very cruel way, you know, because there are still, he is surrounded by very dangerous people, obviously, that he calls his allies, but Alice turned into enemies very easily when this any this this enemies don't get what they want. So I never thought that it makes sense to do like a sanctions, for example, big sanctions. Although I know that two things happen is when Europe is cuts um, Russia from the banking system, World Bank system. But another thing it makes sense to do personal sanctions against these families that are making that decisions. Because when that there's personal investment and personal involvement, people talk so different. And many people that make decisions to attack Ukraine, they have families somewhere in US. And that is the thing that should be, I, from my perspective, very subjective, should be taken care of. Yeah. Because they attack and bring mass here in Europe and then go some some place safe where they feel no one is going to do any trouble. But the thing is what I also noticed, um, one stupid person with a bomb gets to get things his way. He feels he's omnipotent and who knows, maybe he'll proceed any further. What stops him? Yeah, the thing, one thing that concerned me, which you referenced, the dangerous people around Putin. Um, I, a few of my former colleagues are work at the 
you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times in Moscow and, and reported that he used to have more moderate people in the Kremlin, but he's in recent years increasingly surrounded himself with the more pro-Soviet old way thinking and more dangerous people. And the moderates seem to have been pushed aside, which is, could be part of, of, of uh, what's led to this current situation, unfortunately. I think so too. And I think that like, when he came in power, he was different. He was talking about like European wave of like, moving that direction yeah yeah so. yeah when i was on the ground in russia there you know chatting with people on the streets educated young people and this kind of thing at that time back in 09 you know people said he he they didn't all like him they were skeptical of him a lot of the folks i talked to but they said you know he wants to be peter the great he wants to be czar big russia good russia all this he's not doesn't want to be you know soviet or communist and the risks he's taking um, could be very dangerous for himself, I think, as you noted. Um, my last question for you is, is there any hope that you see or anything else you wanted to tell us that we didn't get to cover so far? Well, there are many things I'd love to say, uh, but like, there's so much that you can't even like put it in words, you know? There's fear, there's hope, there's impatience, there's hatred, you know, because I've never hated anyone as much as I hate Russian president right now. I've literally never hated anyone that much, literally. It's a very disgusting feeling and it grows bigger in my heart, you know. Because all politics aside, you know, it's just about one person taking over, trying to take what is not his. And we are suffering the consequence of his big ego. That's how I feel, at least. Well, look, I, Maria, I'm so glad you could make time to talk to us today. And as I told you, and, and you know, in our note, and my note was that, um, you know, I hope listeners of this will be um, thinking, praying for you and your family and your country and um, and really for a best possible outcome from this really unfortunate situation right now um uh, you're in in my thoughts and prayers and all of our friends from eji tmp friends who are journalists um and all their families uh, we are watching this and standing with you as as best that we can from afar thank you very much i really appreciate it and i'm so sincere when i say how much i appreciate it absolutely absolutely oh, thank you Okay. And thank you for offering to talk. So I wish you a very nice day. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of the Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.